Now, at the time that, um, that Watson and Crick figured out the, the structure of DNA, you know, it was sort of obvious that since the two strands are complementary, you could see how it replicated. And they also uh, got a, they could see that somehow the information must be encoded in the sequence of, of, uh, of um, letters down the, the strands of, of the DNA. <clears throat> but it wasn't obvious what the code was, how it was arranged, how it worked. And in, in principle, uh, it was anything you could do with, with four letters. And so I had, I pointed out the other day, this is sort of a four letter alphabet. And I think it's useful to think of it this way with uh, A, G, C, and T. And RNA is also being a four letter alphabet. But proteins are actually a 20 letter alphabet because there are 20 different amino acids. And so somehow, uh, since one of the key things that the DNA had to do, it, was, it somehow had to encode uh, the, the information for making the, the proteins. And it was, there was a lot of work on protein biosynthesis at the time, and it looked pretty complicated. Uh, people had found that RNA seemed to be important. Cells that were making lots of protein had lots of RNA in them. And another thing they noticed was that if you looked in eukaryotic cells, the DNA stayed in the nucleus, but the proteins were, were out, most of them were out in the cytoplasm, and the evidence was that they, they were made out in the cytoplasm. So somehow the information had to get out of the nucleus where the DNA was and uh, into the cytoplasm. And biochemists were breaking cells open and trying to make cellular extracts that would synthesize proteins. And I think it's fair to say at the time that it looked extremely complicated. And so thinking about how DNA encoded information got translated in proteins was, was, a, was a very complex uh, issue. But then actually there was a very interesting development that, that uh, had a strong influence in Watson and Crick and led to them getting, Crick in particular, getting a, a key insight into the nature of this coding problem. There's a physicist, uh, George Gamow, who some of you know, he proposed the Big Bang Theory and very strong theoretical physicist. And he wrote a letter to Watson and Crick. He f thought he'd figured out the basis of the, of the genetic code. And his idea was you had these sequences of A, G, Cs, and Ts. And so every, everywhere that there was an, the two bases came together, there was sort of like a little different shaped hole. So his idea was the amino acids would stick into these little holes. And he had a theory showing that you could uh, encode the sequence of proteins by having the, the side chains of the amino acids stick into these little holes along the DNA. Now, there turned out to be a number of problems with that. It didn't take into account the involvement of RNA, which was sort of, there was quite a bit of evidence for. And more importantly, it didn't take into account the, the, the structure of the side chains of the amino acids, which you guys have been exposed to. But it had a very profound influence on Watson and Crick. They read this letter. They immediately realized the idea was wrong. They went out and had a, a lunch at a pub, decided that Gamhau had, had actually thought there were 25 amino acids, but they realized some of them were just sort of special ones that were modified only in particular proteins. And there were really 20 amino acids that were found 
universally in nature in amino acids. And what they, Crick in particular, realized was that maybe instead of having to think about protein synthesis through this very complex ex set of extracts and mixtures the biochemists was, would work on, that he could think about it at a purely theoretical level, which basically is up at this kind of level, that if you have a molecule that has four letters and it's going to be encoding proteins, how does it do it? Can I work out sort of the basis or a possible theory for that could happen without actually knowing all of the biochemical details? So Crick made a couple of simplifying uh, assumptions. One was that the DNA only determined the linear sequence of amino acids in protein. That all this information about the three-dimensional stuff came from the properties of the, of the uh, linear sequence once it was made. And I think you hopefully have enough understanding of hydrophobic and other sorts of interactions that would cause a, a, a linear sequence of amino acids to take up a particular conformation. And the other thing, he just, he, uh, assumption he made, that it must be universal. And it would be hard to see how life could have started if there wasn't some kind of of uh, code that was universal between organisms. And if you start from those kind of considerations, then what you can see is you can't just have a one-to-one -one correspondence between a letter in the amino, in the uh, nucleic acid alphabet and a letter down here. If A stood for valine, that would be fine, but you could only have code for four amino acids that way. So if you had one letter words, in DNA, there are four possibilities, and so you could only make four. If you had two two-letter words, then you'd have 16 possibilities, still not enough for uh, all the amino acids. If you had three-letter word, then you could do 64 and there'd be, in principle, that would be all you'd need. It doesn't rule out there couldn't be five or six seven-letter words. Or if you think about this as they were thinking about it at the time, uh, even if it were, let's say, a three-letter word, is it a code where you have one word, then the next word, the next word? Or could it be an overlapping word? And what about punctuation? And maybe another thing you can see if it's A, G, C, T, da-da-da-da-da-da there's a frame of reference problem, because if I'm going to read them in groups of three, if I start here, I'll get one word, but if I start one letter over, the next group of three won't be the same. So somehow there would have to be uh, a starting point. And so these are the sort of considerations that they, that, uh, they had to take into uh, account. And, and in fact, Watson and, uh, excuse me, uh, Francis Crick and another scientist, Sidney uh, um, Brenner, and some others, other scientists worked out a very elegant uh, genetic experiment that, that demonstrated that it was a three-letter code. And I don't have the, um, the time to go into it in this course. If you take a genetics course, it's a, it's a very beautiful experiment um, 
the principle of the thing, which I could show you rather easily, is if you're writing a, a three-letter word, a three-letter thing where you're reading in three-letter words, something like this, the cat ran out and, I don't know, ate the rat or something like that. And these were all just continuously run together, not, not separated out, but I put them out here as you can see the three-letter words. If you lost one letter, then it would change to sort of gibberish. You'd get uh, stuff that looked like, like this. And if you uh, put one, one in, you'd have the same problem. But if you were to take out, th either take out three letters or put in three letters, then even though there'd be a little mess in here somewhere, say I took out two more of these, what we would now, from then on, we'd have, but the rest of it would now make sense again. And they did this sort of experiment genetically. They managed to figure out there were two kinds of mutations they could get in a particular way. Some were putting in a letter, some were taking out a letter, and they didn't know at the time whether they were adding or deleting, but they could tell they were in the opposite directions. And then they found if they took three of one class, like three that would delete a letter, and put them all together, then things would more or less work. Or if they put three that stuck in an extra letter, then everything would more or less work. So there was a genetic proof of the uh, three-letter part of the code before it was figured out exactly uh, how the code itself, itself worked. And so at, going from this um, sort of theoretical uh, insight into the, the code to actually figuring out how proteins were made uh, was, was still, there was still quite a lot of stuff that had to, to happen. And one was the, the concept of messenger RNA. As I said, there'd been quite a lot of evidence that RNA was somehow involved in protein synthesis because cells that made a lot of protein made a lot of RNA, and it seemed to be um, in the right sort of place in the, in the cell. Uh, for the proteins to be made. So the idea emerged that RNA was somehow a carrier of information from the DNA to the cytoplasm. So it would uh, carry, uh, could serve as a template for making proteins. So, so the idea was to cop that the cell copied the sequence of a portion the DNA, and we'd probably think of this as a gene right now, um, into RNA, and the RNA would go into the cytoplasm, that's the part outside the nucleus, and then it would serve as a template for protein synthesis. Because of this, this thought that if you had a, a cell like this with the nucleus and the DNA in here, that if a piece of RNA were to go out into the cytoplasm and have those properties, it would be functioning more or less as a messenger that would be carrying the genetic information from inside the nucleus out into the cytoplasm. And so the term 
began to be used of a, a messenger RNA. And so over here, I'll put an mRNA to, to indicate uh, that. Now, one thing you can also see is we've talked about the structure of, of, um, of DNA and RNA. And it's essentially the same with one. This is the nucleotide, which is the fundamental uh, building block of DNA. And if you recall, in DNA, there's a hydroxyl, uh, excuse me, a hydrogen there. But in RNA, there is this extra uh, hydroxyl. This is one, one prime, two prime, three prime, four prime. Excuse me, one. Let's just leave it like this for a moment. One, two, three, four, five. And so this, uh, the um, DNA, as we heard, was um, deoxyribonucleic acid because it's missing this. But other than that, uh, the backbones are, are, are similar. So, and the, the letters are almost the same. The A, the G, and the C are exactly the same bases in DNA and RNA. The only difference is with the T and the, and the uracil. So this is, this is thymine, which is found in DNA. And this is, our, this is uracil. which is found in uh, found in RNA. So the base pairing is over on this part of the molecule. So whether or not you have a methyl group doesn't really change the base pairing. And so this process of copying information in DNA uh, to, uh, to information that's in RNA was seen as, it's essentially the same kind of language, but it's just sort of like taking somebody's word processor file and writing out longhand. Uh, it, you'd be transcribing the information, but it would be the same, essentially the same kind of information in essentially the same, the same form. So this is known as transcription. I'll take just one very brief thing. Some of you may wonder, why did nature do it this way? Why didn't it just use uracil in DNA? So as a very brief aside, uh, there, we, I think we understand pretty much what, why it does it. And that is cytidine has this um, structure. This is, so this is C, which is found in DNA. But it undergoes, uh, all, all of your um, DNA is, is a chemical, and it's, it's able to undergo spontaneous kinds of damage. Uh, in fact, we have in a, every one of our human cells uh, every day, 10,000 times in any given cell, a base falls off totally, just leaving a, the deoxyribose sitting there, and the cells have to fix it up. And we have DNA repair systems that do that. But another very common kind of, of thing that, that happens is that uh, this NH2 group deaminates 
And if you do that, if, if a C happens to deaminate in DNA, it gives you a uracil. And if that ever happens, the cell is actually able to tell that, the, uh, that something went wrong because uracil is not supposed to be in DNA and there are repair systems that constantly scan the DNA and take out, take out any uracils that, that are in there. And the reason that if, if uh, it actually used thymine, instead of using thymine, it used uracil, then the cell wouldn't know whether the uracil got there because it was supposed to be there as part of the sequence or whether it had arisen by uh, deamination of a, of a cytidine. It's a minor point, but there is, I think we do have an understanding as to why there's thymine in DNA and uracil in, in RNA. This isn't, isn't such a worry in, uh, in RNA. Okay, but anyway, um, so there's still a really big problem here, though, that, that Watson and Crick and others were grappling with. And it has to do, as I say, with this fact that the information up here is uh, the first in DNA and RNA. It's written as a sequence of, uh, of letters, if you will, chemical letters. But there are only four letters in the DNA alphabet and essentially the same four letters in the RNA alphabet. However, the protein language has got a totally different alphabet, so uh, we, it's somehow like sort of translating now from English to Japanese or something like that. Some really fundamental change had to happen because it was a real conversion from one kind of language to another. And so this process is known as, as translation, as going from information that's written using a four-letter nucleic acid uh, alphabet to information that's written using a 20-letter uh, <clears throat> amino acid alphabet. And uh, Crick, on purely theoretical grounds, figured, well, if you're going from one language to another, what do you need? You need a translator. And what's a translator? A translator is someone who speaks both languages. So his idea was that if there was I'm going to just separate out, let's say this is the messenger RNA, and I just for, for um, clarity here have spaced out the three-letter words so we can see them. These would be three, like G-A-C or something like that in the, uh, in the RNA, that there would be some kind of translator. And his idea was that it would be something that had a particular amino acid at one end, and it had the complementary nucleotides at the other end, so it could, if you will, read the genetic code that was written in the, in the RNA using the, the nucleic acid uh, alphabet, but it would also be speaking the amino acid uh, language. Got the idea? So this is, this, the idea was that this would be, he, they used the words adapter or a translator, so that was on basically theoretical grounds, that if you had to go from a four-letter language to a 20-letter language, you needed some kind of translator or adapter. Now, at that same time that these considerations are going on, biochemists began to find a class of small uh, RNAs that 
that had an amino acid attached. And so there were entities that had just the sort of properties that, that Cricket envisioned you need from theoretical uh, considerations. These were given the name transfer RNAs or tRNAs as they're usually referred to uh, now. And I've told you that RNA uh, has, since it's got nucleic acid bases, if you have a single strand of, of, of uh, either an RNA or a DNA and you don't have a complementary double strand, then if there are complementary sequences, they can come together and, uh, and pair just the same way that complementary sequences can come together in, in, uh, in DNA. And in the case of tRNAs, once, we, once the sequence of these were determined, they, um, oops, whoops, that, uh, there we go. Um, they, would, they folded up in, into a cloverleaf shape and the amino acid is attached up at the three prime end of the chain up here in what's known as the acceptor part of the molecule. And down here is, so that's, that corresponds to this part up here. And here, are, here is what's known as the anticodon. The, each of these three letter words in nucleic acid language is, give, is called a codon. And so something that had a complementary sequence to a codon is called an, an anticodon. So if it's GGG um, is the codon, then CCC would be the, would be the uh, anticodon. Now, this is just a schematic, as you can see. It shows where the... Um, uh, where the um, uh, hydrogen bonds are that form the stuff. When the crystal structures were done, first crystal structure of tRNA was actually done by Alex Rich. He's in the biology department at MIT, and he was in this picture I showed you talking to, to Matt Messelson. And we, although we can't see this terribly well, maybe you could hit the lights there. Um, the crystal structure showed that that the the molecule had a didn't look like a clover leaf is in there. It had more this shape, and I'll show you this more clearly in this picture. I showed you this little part of the of the thing when I was showing you how an RNA could form up, could form where, for example, if you copy us the the gene encoding a tRNA, and for example, the the green se sequence here in green is complementary to the sequence here, or the sequence here in in sort of blue or purple is complementary to the sequence here that what can happen then if you t allow a single strand uh, RNA like this to fold up, thermodynamically it will then go to the lower energy state which is, involves being able to make these hydrogen bonds. And I think you can sort of see the clover leaf. Here's one of the leaves, the other's down here and the others. It's a little bit distorted here. And the reason is, because I'm going to continue now to show you how this structure, once you get to the clover leaf, then it folds up to make other kinds of interactions and it takes that shape with the tRNA going on at this end and the anticodon being down here. And what's happening now, they've morphed on the van der Waals surfaces so you can see what this would look like 
three-dimensional shape. The, TR, the, the amino acid would be attached at that end, and there is the anticodon that would be able to recognize the codon in the, in the RNA. I mean, it, the physical reality is pretty close to this simple, uh, simple little depiction here. Okay, so once this, uh, this uh, basic paradigm had been, had been straightened out, that gave rise then to this, this idea then, putting it all together, that the information in DNA, that a portion of it was, would be copied into RNA, and that would go out into the cytoplasm, and then in the cytoplasm, these translators, the tRNAs, would be able to decode the, uh, read the, the nucleic acid information and use that to determine the linear order of amino acids uh, in a protein. Uh, Crick, when he came up with this, gave this the term, the central dogma, and it's a word that still People still use this term to apply to this, this idea of information flow going from DNA to RNA and protein is still used to this day. There's actually a, a sort of little twist to that because at the time that Crick proposed the term, he actually thought that the word dogma meant uh, an idea for which there is not reasonable evidence. But he was sort of amused years later to realize that a, a more reasonable definition of dogma is sort of something that a true believer cannot doubt. And so he kind of accidentally <laughs> made an assertion that he was right. But fortunately, he was right. Um, now, the next big job, though, in working, in working this out was to crack the code. And it's fine to know that it's a three-letter code, and it's fine to know it goes into RNA, and, and uh, then the tRNAs translate it. But if you, can't, can't, if you can't crack the code, then you have no idea what any of the information uh, means. It was sort of like before the Rosetta Stone when they could look at the hier hieroglyphics in the Egyptian tombs and they could see that there was a lot of information and there were symbols and so on, but they didn't know what it meant until finally they got something that allowed them to relate it to a language they did know and they were able to work out the principles. So somehow uh, scientists had then to crack the code and there were two, um, uh, two scientists who played uh, a really big role. One was Marshall. Nuremberg, who was at NIH and is in fact still at NIH, and the other one was an MIT scientist who's on the same floor as me at MIT, Goldman uh, Karana, and they used two different approaches. But between these two approaches, the the genetic code was was cracked. And what uh, Nuremberg did was to take a protein synthesizing extract that he knew needed RNA in order to work. So that was, wasn't a surprise at this point, because people were thinking the RNA would be the message. 
And what at that point, the, our, the ability to make uh, synthesize uh, nucleic acids is quite limited compared to what we do now. And so there were different ways of making them. Uh, sometimes you could do it enzymatically. But what Nuremberg, for example, was able to make was poly-U. So this was an RNA that was just U, 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 U. And then what he did was he set up 20 reactions. And in every reaction, he put some of this extract, he put poly-U, and he put 19 of the, of the amino acids that were um, unlabeled, and then only one amino acid that had radio label in it. So he ran these 20 reactions, and he waited to see, could he get any, in any of these, did he get uh, protein made that would have been coded by the poly-U? And what he ended up with was polyphenylalanine. Which you may recall when we were talking about structures of amino acids, there's the basic backbone, and the polyphenylalanine is the one that has, if you will, a benzene ring hanging off, off the end. And so what that meant was that UUU must code for phi, or phenylalanine, and if it's UUU in the RNA, that must mean that the DNA that encodes this must have, must have that sequence, AAA and TTT. And you can see that one of the two strands of the DNA, since T base pairs the same as uridine, one of the strands in the the DNA is going to have the same sequence as one of the strands in the, in the RNA. Now, I'll tell you one brief little anecdote. I heard uh, Marshall Nuremberg talk at this, this uh, meeting they had to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the discovery of DNA, and um, he posed something that I'd never thought about in my years of teaching this, but might occur to you guys if we put it on a problem set. Uh, you all know something that Benzene is nothing but <laughs> sort of these, uh, this is, I call it, even referred to it as a, as a benzene ring. It's a very organic kind of solvent. So if we put on a problem set, if you made polyphenylalanine, would you expect this to be soluble in water? Well, this is very, very hydrophobic, very, very water-hating, and your answer would be correct if you said, no, I wouldn't expect polyphenylalanine to be soluble in water. In fact, if it were in a protein, we would expect it to probably be in the core where the, all the hydrophobic interactions, the water-hating parts, would go. So Marshall Nuremberg said in his talk, well, he had, he'd shown that he had radioactive phenylalanine in. He still had to prove chemically that he had polyphenylalanine, but he wasn't much of a biochemist, so he walked down to the lab just below him at NIH and walked in the door and saw the first person he said, saw and said, how do you... Um, uh, how do you solubilize polyphenylalanine? Let's make sure I got this right. And the guy said, oh, you just take 33% hydrobromic acid and glacial acetic acid, and, and it works. So he went back upstairs and dissolved it. Turned out it, it dissolved in that, and he went on to characterize it. And he said it didn't occur to him, or he didn't learn until about 15 or 20 years later, 
that he just walked up to the only person in the world who knew how to solubilize polyphenylalanine. By total coincidence, this guy who he talked to had been working away, trying to figure out a way, and had come with this odd mix of hydrobromic acid and, and glacial acetic. And he just, instead of you know, all the places in the world, he walked up to the one person who knew and, and got the answer. So the other part of the story then involves uh, Gobin Krana, who I mentioned when I was telling you initially about the, the Nobel laureates at, um, at, at uh, MIT. And Gobin is a brilliant organic chemist. He synthesized DNA. Uh, you know, there was a point where a whole issue of a journal came out that was nothing but his lab's work on synthesizing uh, DNA. Well, he was good at nucleic acids, and one of the strategies that they could use chemically was they would make something like a, a dinucleotide, like CA, and then they were able to polymerize that to make a piece of RNA. So they could make an RNA that had the sequence CA, 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 and so on. And what you can see from that is that there are two different codons in that. One is uh, CAC and the other is ACA and the reason he made it was he was synthesizing it by polymerizing um, nucleotides. So in these same kind of experiments I was describing before, what they found this synthesized was alternating histidine and threonine. And it took, you can't tell from that experiment alone one of those is, must be um, histidine, and one of them must be threonine. But you can't tell from that experiment. So more experiments were needed. And what was learned from that experiment in that case was that CAC corresponded to histidine, and ACA corresponded to, to threonine. So these kind of experiments were then uh, put together to give what's known as the genetic code, which is the three-letter words encoded in DNA that encode the sequence of amino acids and proteins. And there's, it's usually displayed as a table. And you read it in this way, that this, is the, this thing over here is the first base in the codon. Across the top is the second base in the codon. And down over here is the third base. So if we go to um, uh, C as the first, say the one for histidine, we're just showing you C is the first letter. A is the second letter. So this is the box that's going to, we're going to be looking at. And if C is the third letter, we can see it encodes histidine. Or A, C, come back to A. Uh, then uh, the A is certainly threonine. But you can also see something else here. And that is because there were 64 possibilities uh, with this three-letter word, the code is what's known as degenerate. That is, there are, there are more words in the, in the uh, genetic code than are needed to specify the, um, the number of amino acids that have to be coded. So I just want to make a couple of, of points about this. So the genetic code it's degenerate. There are 61 codons that correspond to an amino acid. And that means that some, and threonine is a good example, there's more than one word in the genetic code that means uh, threonine. There were three codons for which there was no corresponding 
amino acid. And those mean stop, and that would make sense because if you're reading down a nucleic acid piece of RNA, at some point you'd have to end the protein. And so there are actually three that are, that are used for that purpose. And uh, there's some small variation on this uh, in, in nature. There's usually one, oops, one amino acid that's used for starting a protein, and that's methionine, and it's AUG right there. Now, some of this stuff probably sounds like it's been around forever, and that's certainly true of some of the stuff you hear in, in, um, in your chemistry and math and physics courses. Just want to drive you home. When I was an undergrad, Watson's first book called The Molecular Biology of the Gene had come out. So I was, when I was your age, and I realize I look ancient, but you know, <laughs> still, at least I'm still here. Um, uh, when, I, uh, when I was an undergrad, I had Watson's book. This was the genetic code that was in the book, the genetic code as of May 1965. And you'll notice there are a bunch of, there are gaps in here, and all the things that are underlined were things that, for which there was a tentative assignment. So although you may take this, think that it's been knowledge that's been around forever, it was still, you know, it, was in, it wasn't even complete in the textbook when I, was a, when I was an undergrad. Okay, so one of the things then that's important to think about uh, the nucleic acid stuff, there's, there's, this is the basis of how uh, proteins are coded in the DNA, but everything else has to be there too. And the genetic code, that's what we've been talking about, is universal. But there are other languages written in the DNA that are not universal. And one of them was that little example I gave you with an origin of replication. E. coli only starts DNA replication at one very particular point in its chromosome. So it is a particular sequence of DNA. It's actually about 250 <laughs> nucleotides long. So you could think of that as a language. It's a like starting DNA, a chromosome replication language. It's only got one word in it, and the word is 250 nucleotides long. Another place that's very important, and that is if you're going to make an RNA copy, if you're going to do transcription of a piece of DNA, and this is the... I'll call this the coding sequence. This would be the sequence of three-letter words that would specify the amino acid of the, of the protein. If you were going to make an RNA copy of that, you would have to somewhere have something here that's a sequence up here that means start transcription. and one at the end, some other sequence of, of uh, letters in the nucleic acid that would mean stop transcription. This is given the technical term it's referred to as a promoter. The stop one is referred to 
as a, as a terminator. And these, uh, we'll say more about this, because one of the thing, the, the beauties of having this system of getting, uh, making an RNA copy is it provides a beautiful point of regulation, because the cell can determine whether or not it's going to make a particular protein by whether or not it chooses to make the, um, make, <clears throat> make the protein or not. And so uh, having this RNA intermediate and being able to control transcription is a really important part of the whole regulation that makes, uh, that makes life uh, possible. The transcription is carried out by an enzyme that's known as RNA polymerase. And let me make one more point. Just before, I was just, this, these promoters and terminators are not universal. So when we talk about recombinant DNA a little bit in the course, if I take a mouse gene and I put it in E. coli, even though the genetic code is the same, we might have all the same sequence of amino acids specified, you won't get the RNA made because the, thing, the sequences that say start transcription and stop transcription are different between a mouse and a bacterium, even though the genetic code is the same. So you can kind of see from first principles, if you're doing recombinant DNA and you wanted to express a mouse protein in E. coli, you would have to fiddle around with the sequences up here and the sequences down there, the parts that are, are not universal. You guys with me? Okay, so what, what, what does an RNA uh, polymerase do? It, sort of, it recognizes this, this sequence and then it teases the strands apart to make a little bubble like this. So let's say A, T, A, G, C, T, A. So the other strand then would be T, A, T, C, G, T, A. And then RNA polymerase, unlike um, a DNA polymerase, can begin a chain de novo. Remember an important thing about DNA polymerases was they had to have a primer terminus to get started. That was why they had to use those Okazaki fragments. So this is DNA. This would be 5 prime, 3 prime, 3 prime, and 5 prime. And it will, what an RNA polymerase can do, it uses the ATP, the GTP, the CTP, and the UTP. It uses triphosphates. Excuse me, not, not get rid of the, excuse me, my mistake. No, no deoxys here, of course, this is RNA. Uses ATP, GTP, CTP, and, uh, and UTP as the substrates. So it uses triphosphates just the same way DNA polymerases do. And then it's able to start a chain de novo and it synthesizes the RNA in a five prime to three prime direction, the same direction that a strand of DNA is made by DNA polymerase. So it would copy here and so it would put in an A opposite a T and then because it's RNA, it will put in a U opposite an A, and then an A, G, C, A, and U, and so on. So this right here is the beginning of the RNA that's being synthesized by the uh, RNA polymerase. This strand is known as the transcribed strand and by default, then, that one is the non-transcribed strand. And what you can see by doing this 
it's making in RNA the same sequences up here, except that everywhere there's a T, there's no U in the, in the uh, DNA. So the final thing then is how, the, how this information gets all put together to make proteins. And protein synthesis is done by an amazing machine known as a ribosome. It's made up of some special large RNAs. called rRNAs, some proteins as well. These are, make up the ribosome. And then it needs a messenger RNA, uh, and it needs the various tRNAs, each of which carries uh, an amino acid that's appropriate to its, its anticodon. And the, in very briefly sort of the way this is, and you can see this in, in your textbook, what the ribosome does is it takes, it's sort of a, let's consider this is the messenger RNA. I'm just going to take three codons here. And this messenger RNA threads into the, the ribosome, and I'll sort of show a kind of a, it's able to recognize the first codon and the second codon. Remember, of course, there's no spacing like this in the RNA. And then in the context of this large uh, factory, it's able to find the tRNA that has amino acid 1 and the, the anticodon that would correspond to this, the tRNA that has the next amino acid attached and its anticodon. So you can see what's happened. That It's been able to order the first amino acid encoded by that codon and put it physically right next to the, the, um, the next amino acid that's coded here. And then it catalyzes the formation of a peptide bond. What happens when that does is the way this amino acid is joined to the tRNA, there's energy stored in that bond. And so thermodynamically, that, was, that allows this bond formation to go. And now you end up essentially with this. And what happens now is everything clicks over one. So you could think of it as this this whole RNA shifts over one, so the, the one that used to be here is now sticking outside. Here's part of the ribosome. Here's the next codon. This, what we have here is the tRNA. It's got amino acid 2 joined to amino acid 1. The next codon specifies the next amino acid, which is 3, and the, and the process is then able to to go on like that. Now, the, the structure of the ribosome, the crystal structure of the ribosome was just finished, and I guess we've got as many lights out as we can do right now. Um, it's absolutely remarkable. It's mostly RNA. Uh, this is the gray stuff and the blue stuff are two huge RNAs that are all folded up in three-dimensional space. And these things that are sort of stuck on the outside, these purple things here, or the, the dark blue things here that sort of look like cherries stuck in the outside of a cake, 
Those are proteins. So most of this is RNA, big balls of RNA with proteins kind of decorating the outside. The messenger RNA is a green thing that snakes through. There's the messenger RNA. See, it's snaking through. And maybe you can recognize in the middle this, this tRNA. Uh, there's an orange one and a yellow one. Those correspond to the t two tRNAs I depicted here. And I'm just going to see if I can stop this at a, there's a, there's a viewpoint I'd like you to see uh, when it comes around again here in just a sec. I'll see if I can catch it there, right there. This is the, here's one of the tRNAs in yellow, and its end is right there. And there's the other tRNA, and its end is right there. So this corresponds to the point at which there's going to be an amino acid formed, and it's going to be catalyzed. Something's going to catalyze the formation of that bond. Well, the next picture sort of shows uh, what happens if you pull that apart. And what you'll see is that here's what, the end of one end of the tRNA. There's the other end. And there's nothing near it except for RNA. So RNA is actually catalyzing the formation of the peptide bond. Another way to say that would be that the ribosome, which is the protein synthesizing the factory, is a ribozyme. Remember I said most of the chemical reactions that are that need catalysts are carried out by proteins, but there are a few that are carried out by, by RNA, where RNA is the catalyst. And remarkably, the formation of the bond, which is at the heart of proteins, which are so important for all life, is, is, is um, catalyzed by protein. If you look at what makes proteins, what, what do you see? You see huge balls of RNA, a messenger in our th RNA threading through, two tRNAs, and the enzyme activity or the catalytic activity is encoded by the RNA as well. As I said, people think possibly there was an RNA world that preceded our present day world with DNA, RNA, and protein. And who knows? But this sort of look at a ribosome could at least make you see that that's a plausible <laughs> explanation that RNA might have been running the show for a while before anything else got involved. Anyway, we'll see you on Friday then. <laughs>